Welcome to the podcast for The Abbey, a vineyard church located in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous sermons on Apple Podcasts or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There, you'll also find important announcements along with the location and time of our in-person gatherings. Now, here's this week's message. Friends, it's good to be here together. What a cool little spot. Um, uh, thanks so much for showing up. There's a lot happening in uh, the life of our city today. I don't know how many of you got stuck because of a race. Just like a people running, roads closed, all kinds of things. Um, so some people got up and ran like 10 miles today. And um, I'm not one of those people. Uh, Hannah is not one of those people. She's shaking her head. But... Um, uh, lots of cool things happening over here. I'm just like mindful that, you know, we're surrounded by bars. And um, before I launch in, I just, as I was sitting there and praying, I just wanted to say just a little word about what, what are we doing in the life of our church and why are we here? And what I want to say is that you are sitting in the fastest growing area of our city and um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people will be moving within two miles of this location in the next, like, two to three years. And part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to be a church in the city for our city. And the thing that we just did, sitting in silence, like asking God to speak to us, like that is at the center of our mission because we believe that the most important thing that God is focused on in your life is you. That as we grow in our capacity to notice what God is doing in us and loving us and caring for us, that that's how we become missional out into the world. And so everything that we're doing is meant to actually locate us in the center of the city, in the center of the growth that's happening around us, so that we can become the kind of people that give away the love of God into our city. And so if you just need a little reminder of like, why am I here? Why am I sitting in a bar on a Sunday morning? Um, uh, traffic's going by. You're going to hear a screeching train probably in, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes or so. It's going to come on by, and you're going to be like, what are we doing right now? The reason we're here is to feel the love of God and eventually become the kind of people that know how to give that love away. Does that make sense? Um, so we've been slowly working our, our way through a series that we've entitled Becoming Human, and this series will take us from now until Easter through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to use a couple of Sundays in the month of May to sort of orient us to some summer rhythms and begin to cast a vision for what the life of our church looks like starting next fall. And um, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to get a, a letter. If you're not on our mailing list, I would strongly recommend signing up uh, on, our, on our email list because you're going to get some communication in the next couple of weeks um, around some of our hopes and expectations and thoughts about what we'll do and who we'll be starting in September. But we've got to make some plans for the next kind of calendar year, and we're going to need some input from you, from you all about those plans. And so just be on the lookout for that. We're going to need some response from you. Um, this series on Becoming Human has been a deep dive into what theologians call theological anthropology, which is just a big word way of saying the question, what does it mean to be a human being? Like, why are we here? What has God created us for? And uh, more specifically and more importantly for us, what does it mean to be a human being who's caught up in the story of Jesus and the story that the scriptures are unfurling before us? Um, 
so long ago. This is a story we're invited into. And our assumption, our starting point in the life of this community is that being a follower of Jesus will mean that our life and our practices and the way we think about all sorts of things in the world, from money to family to sex and war, will come underneath our viewpoint of thinking about Jesus and coming into relationship with Jesus. Everything in our life and everything that we see in the world gets reprioritized as God dwells within us and breathes his spirit through us, and we begin to see the world differently. And this question of what does it mean to be a human being uh, is, is one of those like really deep questions. And it's further deepened when one of the largest nations in the world invades another country with violence and aggression. And we begin to think about things maybe a little bit differently. I don't know how many of you are news followers. Like how many of, your, how many of you have like upticked your news consumption in the past couple of weeks? Is it just me? Like, I just find myself gravitating towards wondering what's actually happening, and that's actually probably a decent thing. I mean, there are some really big happenings in the world going on right now, and um, of course, I'm talking about the things that are unfolding in Ukraine and Russia invading for no reason at all. And I know that I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to have something to say from the scriptures about what's happening in the world. And I do believe that the scriptures say something about the kind of thing that's happening in Russia and Ukraine. But before I launch into what I want to talk about today, I want to just say to you that there's really no way of talking about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine unless we say something about the ancient story of sin and brokenness. And what this means, and part of the thing I want to draw attention to is that the same thing that is happening in the heart of Vladimir Putin is happening in my heart. Whatever is driving Putin to war, that same brokenness, it lives inside of me. And it lives inside of you in some degree or another. Thomas Merton, he was writing... At the time of the Vietnam War, Merton was a monk living about four hours south of here at the Abbey of Gethsemane in the middle of Kentucky. And he's sort of stuck in a monastery trying to figure out, what do I do about the war? How many of you are asking a question right now, like, what do I do? We're going to get to that. We're going to talk about that. But Merton is writing, and one of the things he writes, he says this. He says, instead of hating the people that you think are war makers, hate the appetites and disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself, not in another. And I, and I want you to hold this in your hands because we're going to come back to this. But our our main passage of Scripture for today is a passage of Scripture that I think is one of the most radical teachings of Jesus And it's this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this week, I'm struck by the stories that I'm hearing of Ukrainian families serving tea and cakes to Russian soldiers who've decided that they want nothing to do with the war. And Ukrainian medical teams are caring for wounded Russian soldiers. Most of the news that you're going to hear are about you know, economic sanctions and no-fly zones and the entire world sort of chipping in and pulling to, to provide weapons for war. 
But because of my commitment to Jesus, I know that the real war is being waged with radical acts of hospitality on the part of normal, everyday Ukrainian people. That's how I think about this. The kind of stories that we read are much like the stories of the scriptures. I mean, with a few minor adjustments, the story of Ukrainian women caring for wounded soldiers or the image of a defecting Russian soldier drinking tea while FaceTiming his mom back in Moscow from a borrowed phone of a Ukrainian teenager sounds like a parable. These are Jesus kinds of stories that are unfolding before our eyes. And I want us to be able to have the kind of eyes to see war through the lens of what it means to follow after Jesus. And this is the way that I'm looking at this. Love your enemies and persecute. Sorry. (laughs) See that? That's a little slip, right? The darkness in my heart. No. (laughs) Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. This is the center of our passage this morning, and like I said, you may be wondering what you can do in the midst of war right now. We're going to get to that a little bit at the end, but I want to begin at the end of this passage because at the end of this passage, we have this, uh, this time of instruction uh, to love your enemy and to pray for those that persecute you is actually part of a larger section of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and halfway through the sermon... As Matthew records it, beginning in verse 21, this is not in front of you, uh, Jesus starts to get into a bit of a rhythm, and the rhythm sort of goes like this. The rhythm says, you have heard it say, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I'm going to tell you something slightly a little bit different. So he says, you've heard it says, and then he quotes a part of the Old Testament law or the Torah And that is meant to guide the people of Israel in their behavior and how they're supposed to operate and think into the world. You have heard it said, and then Jesus immediately provides his own teaching, his own commentary based upon that thing. But not as a way of negating what the Old Testament Torah says, but as a way of expanding it. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told that you shall not commit murder, but whoever commits murder shall be liable in court. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty in the courts. And anyone who calls his brother a good for nothing shall be faced with trial. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever even lusts after a woman has already committed the adultery in his heart. Like, why is he doing this? Six times in this little section, the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, Jesus uh, quotes a a, a popular phrase from the Torah or the Old Testament, and and then he follows it by giving his own commentary on the purpose or the intention of that law. And then in verse 48, he says this. Um, You can't see it on that one, can you? We cut off verse 48. That's okay. In verse 48, he says this, Therefore, which effectively means, listen, everything that I've been telling you is headed to this point. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's where this whole sort of round of teaching comes to. And now, so often when we read this phrase, uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it feels a, bit of, a little bit like a litmus test of sorts. Some high bar that we'll never be able to live up to as though we're being judged by some standard of perfection. And I want to start here for, for two reasons, really. 
And it's these two reasons that oftentimes when we read this particular teaching, um, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, people have generally two responses to the Sermon on the Mount, this sort of high bar thing that Jesus is saying. And the first response goes something like this. Wow, this, this like feels entirely impossible. <laughs> like turn the other cheek. Seriously, go the extra mile. Give to every person who asks of me. Like this just sounds like an overly idealized version of my faith and I'll never be able to do this. And the second response is something like this. It's often seen as this call to perfection and we begin to feel the distance of our life and the life of God. And so we come up to this passage where it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we begin to feel shame and we begin to feel guilt and we're like, how is this ever, how am I ever going to live up to this? And we begin to set in our mind this effort that we have to try to put forward in order to do that thing. How many of you are caught in maybe one of these two. It's like, I'm just not even going to try because this sounds ridiculous. Or I'm trying really, really hard and I'm constantly feeling like a failure. But here's the thing about, about what we're looking at right now. Um, the Greek word for perfect. So let me dive a little bit under the ocean here with you for a second. This Greek word for perfect, it's the word teleoi which is the verbal form of a noun called telos, which is derived you know, from that noun. And it means the consummation of a thing, the end goal, or the purpose of a thing. That's what telos means. It's why some translates, translations will translate this word as complete or whole. And it's this idea of fulfillment, of wholeness and completeness. And so another way that we could look at this is to be whole, be complete as your heavenly Father is whole and complete. That hits a bit different, doesn't it? I'm trying to learn how the teenagers talk, by the way. Do you guys know that phrase that hits different? You heard this? I'm just learning, you know, like I've got teenagers at home. How did I do? Is this okay? All right, sounds good. So be whole, be complete as your heavenly Father is whole and complete. What Jesus is saying is that our destiny, the way that we're meant to be in the world as human beings, and the end goal of this project of being a human being is to be completely whole, just as your heavenly Father is completely whole. But that doesn't mean that the instruction that Jesus is laying out is stuff that we shouldn't try or practice or participate in. What Jesus is saying is that his teaching is building on all of the work that has come before in the Old Testament, and he's building upon that tradition. You have heard it said, do not murder, don't divorce your wife, don't say that you're going to do something for God and fail to do it. And all of these instructions are instructions that are meant to set you on a path for being able to grow into completion, to become like God, to grow into wholeness, to, to become perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what Jesus says is, I am here to tell you that all of these instructions were posted up as laws in the Old Testament for you to follow for the purpose of an even bigger aim. Namely, it's not just the outward actions that matter. Those outward actions are meant to do something to your heart. They're meant to change your disposition. They're meant to change something deep within you, to orient and to train you and to grow you up into the kind of person that's like your father. And so I don't know if any of you have grown up in an environment 
where it felt like all of these tasks that you had to perform as a Christian were the things that you were being judged on. That's not actually how it works. It's just training. It's training our hearts to be like our Father who's in heaven. Does this make sense? Are you guys with me? Okay. So you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Now just camp out with me for a second. I know that that's a little bit hard to see. But this first part Jesus gets from the scriptures. Jesus pulls this from Leviticus chapter 19. Um, Leviticus 19 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. and This is my command to you. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say to hate your enemies. Anybody ever come across that in the scriptures? No, it's not there. So like, why is Jesus saying it? He's probably getting it from the culture around him. So Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people who are living on their own land, a land that was given to them by God as an inheritance, but now is occupied by a global superpower, namely Rome. Does this like sound a little familiar? And there were these little pockets of narratives that emerged in this context that began to bend the Jewish people towards hate and disgust of the, of the Roman people and the Roman Empire. And to be clear, the Roman Empire did some really terrible things to the Jewish people. So there's this cultural moment that Jesus is sort of standing in the middle of, and he says, you've heard it said in the law, the guidebook that is given to you by Moses, to love your neighbor, which really was the people like them. So when they thought about who is my neighbor, do you guys know that story where there's a question about who is my neighbor? It's because the way that the Jewish people would have thought about what it means to be someone's neighbor is that the people who are like me, namely the other Jewish people, those are my neighbors. And the implication that was unfolding in this cultural moment was that if the instruction is that I must love my neighbor, the people in my tribe, in my culture then that must mean I'm allowed to hate my enemy, those people who are outside of that. Does that make sense? So there was this little splinter groups that were trying to get the Jewish people to rise up against Rome, to take up arms, to wield the sword. This is why, by the way, when, when the soldiers come in the Garden of Gethsemane to take away Jesus, Peter takes a sword and slices off a guy's ear because he thinks it's the time for revolution. And Jesus, of course, picks up the ear and puts it back on and says, no, that's not what we're doing. We're doing something different. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Do you know why it doesn't make any sense? This is the first that anyone in the history of the world ever said anything like this. And it still has this sort of ring in our ears. I don't get it. How do we, how do we even begin to do this? And the reason that it doesn't make a ton of sense 
is that the way that we see the world and the way that we get stuck in our vision of the world is that we see the world through this lens where we're subdivided into groups of people. There are conservatives and there are liberals, there are Democrats and there are Republicans, there are maskers and anti-vaxxers and there's deconstructionists. There are people who take the shopping carts back to the little shopping cart station and then there are barbarians who leave them in the parking lot next to their car. I'm actually one of the barbarians. I refuse to, I'm sorry, but it's a confession. I know you're shaking your head. I do not take the shopping carts back. I'm sorry, I'm really working on it. We, we subdivide people into these little categories, and there's a whole other host of ways that we divide people up in the world, and we get caught up in borders and walls and laboring people as immigrants and refugees so that we can exclude some people and welcome other people. And we, we limit, by the way, how many people that we welcome. Guys, on a little aside, one way that you could pray right now is that our country would increase the amount of refugees that we allow. That number is currently 65,000 a year. It's way too low. It needs to be close to a million in order to be able to receive all of the people that are fleeing war all throughout our country. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting the way that our world pushes us to try to keep track of all of these subdivisions that we're supposed to try to figure out who, who is with me and who's against me? Who is my enemy and who's my friend? Who, in fact, is my neighbor? Do they think like me? Do they vote like me? Do they mask like me? Do they vax like me? Over and over and over again, we get subdivided. And it turns out, Jesus actually thinks really differently. <laughs> who's surprised by that? Anybody surprised by that? Okay. Verse 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. So the result of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is that you will be a son or a daughter of God, which in this context means that you will be in the likeness of God. That's what it means to be a son or a daughter. So let me just chat a bit, a bit about here. Sonship was a vital concept in the ancient Near East. Sons carried on the legacy of their fathers. They inherited their father's estates. They ran their father's businesses, and they represented their father's interests in the world. That's what it meant to be a son in the ancient Near East. And so when Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons, and I'm going to say daughters as well, of your father who is in heaven, he's saying this is how you become like your father. You become like your father when you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For your father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So think with me just for a moment about what Jesus is saying. And I want you to try to picture yourself on the side of a hill just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching on the hillside. There's surrounded by land and farms. There's probably an olive orchard within eyesight, probably a vineyard off in the distance and a fig farm just over the next hill. 
What Jesus is saying is that you cannot tell who is good or evil by the condition of their crops. You can't walk by a farm and determine whether the owner of that farm is a good person or a bad person because God sends sunshine and rain indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. God loves and and he provides his love completely indiscriminately. So loving your enemy and praying for people who persecute you is not the starting point, it's the destination. That's where you're that's where you're like headed as a human being to be able to do that. But the way to the destination is to begin to allow the reality of God's indiscriminate love to be the way that you see the world. That God loves everyone indiscriminately. It's like saying you're going to train for a marathon and someone handing you a plan that starts you off with a quarter of a mile jog. Anybody ever trained for a race? You, you sort of get the, 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 the race deadline and you're like, I can't quite yet run a marathon or a 5K or whatever it is, but I've got to start somewhere. And what Jesus is saying is that the way that we start to learn how to become like our Father is we begin to pray for those that are persecuting us. So if you or I were to start loving our enemy and praying for that person who's persecuting you, the person who's bullying you at school or that boss that is speaking poorly about you to your coworkers or that family member that blames you for all of the things that are going wrong in your extended family, if we start loving that person and praying for them, it wouldn't be a mile, uh, a marathon version at first. We wouldn't be able to do it. But then we would cry out for the help of God and that God would, would begin to help us. We'd find that we were sort of out of breath. How many of you have tried to love an enemy and found out, like, this is impossible? How many of you have people in your life that have inflicted pain on you? And you're trying to extend love and grace and kindness to them, and it just feels like, I just can't do this. And so what happens as we begin to love our enemies, as we begin to pray for people that persecute us, some of our prayers will look like David's prayers in Psalm 53 and Psalm 54. I want you to go look those up this week. These are prayers when when David prays for the destruction of his enemies. Do you guys know that that's in the Bible? David is crying out, God, kill them, swallow them up. But then some of our prayers begin to look like the prayer of David in Psalm 35. This is what he says in Psalm 35. He says, malicious witnesses, they rise up. They they ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of of my soul. And so David is describing to God the grief that is in his heart about the pressing of the enemies against his life. But then he says this. As for me, when they, my enemies, were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my heart. He's describing a situation where his enemies are returning evil for good, and those are the very same people who, when they got sick, David put on sackcloth, and he fasted for them to get well. And what begins to happen is that when we pray for our enemies, our prayer ends up coming back to us and penetrating our own heart. 
When we love our enemies, when we pray for the people that persecute us, we tap into the way that God sees them in his indiscriminate love. His indiscriminate love. And we begin to love in the way that God loves. And when we do this over and over again as a practice, we love our enemies and we pray for them. And sometimes we pray for them like David, who had lots of enemies and prayed a lot. We get in fact, we get in touch with the fact that, that we sometimes want our enemies to die. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but if you pray for your enemies, that will probably rise up in you. I wish something bad would happen. But sometimes when you pray for your enemies, something shifts in your heart. That prayer comes back to your heart and you begin to have your heart soften. I don't know if you guys have ever had an experience of knowing somebody uh, who you were totally cool with. Like you didn't have any beef with them at all. Like everything seemed to be fine. You were not angry with them. You didn't imagine in any way that you were on bad terms. But in their own minds, they decided that you were their enemy. Anyone ever have that? And then you find out you're surprised that somebody is angry with you or upset about you doing something a decade ago that somehow never got resolved. And there's this sense that maybe something is unreconciled between you. So... I think this is basically God's perspective. Stay with me here. Every single one of us once thought of ourselves as God's enemy or thought of God as our enemy. This is what the scripture teaches. So some of us tend to live in a world where we're the blame for everything and others tend to live in the world where somebody else is the blame for everything. And so sometimes our disposition towards God is in one of these realms as well. Colossians 1.21 says that although you and I were formerly alienated and hostile to God in our minds, the way that we thought about God was that we're alienated. He has reconciled you by his body through his death in order to present you before the Father as completely whole, as perfect and blameless and beyond reproach, it says in Colossians 1. <clears throat> so friends, God has always had a soft spot for enemies. And his indiscriminate love was demonstrated for all of us in order that we might think of God as our friend and not our enemy. He demonstrated the love in a concrete way. In the act of demonstrating that love, he prayed for us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So at the center of life with God, at the center of God's life, is the fact that he has a soft spot for the people who think that they are his enemies. And the sun and the rain... They, they fall on both the righteous and the wicked because God's love is indiscriminate for you and for your enemy, for Zelensky, for Putin, for Joe Biden, for Donald Trump, whatever it is, God's love is completely indiscriminate. 
Obviously, guys, this doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable for things. That's a different sermon, okay? I'm trying to get you in touch with the indiscriminate nature of God's love. So I want to close by returning to just two simple things. This exhortation by Thomas Merton, which I want to invite you to meditate on this week a little bit. And then an invitation to do something very practical for the situation in Ukraine. So let me read this again for you. Instead of hating the people that you think are war makers, hate the appetites and disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate those things in yourself, not in another. And I want to walk this back just a step. What I don't want this to sound like is self-hatred. This is not what we're doing right now. What Merton is doing here is reminding us that some of the very same things that caused this war in Ukraine, the greed and the lust for power and pride, those ingredients are in the cocktail mixer of my own soul. It's another way of saying something that is very similar to another teaching of Jesus where Jesus encourages us to look at the very large chunk in our own eye before trying to get the piece of sawdust out of another's eye. And I know it feels like a global war is a bigger chunk than just a piece of sawdust. I know that that's what it feels like and sounds like. But the instruction of Jesus is rather to, to put that sort of focus outward onto another person and their aggression and their greed that we should rather than focus on our own, our own heart. And so my invitation to you, which is the only thing I can think of to do as someone that's following Jesus, as we think about this news of Russia and Ukraine, is to allow what is unfolding on the global scale, which is terrifying, by the way, it's, it's appropriate to feel a great level of, of, of heaviness and emotion about what's happening in the world, but to allow that to be a vigilant reminder, a picture lived out in the real world of some of the same things that are swirling inside of you and inside of me. And the second very practical thing that I would invite you to do is to pray for somebody that is persecuting you. I know that that does not feel practical. It feels like a little drop in the, in the barrel of what's happening on a global scale. But if we are to live in the story of Jesus, one of the things that we will recognize is that the way that the kingdom of God works is like a little yeast working its way through the entire dough or a tiny little seed in a garden that begins to sprout up. Your love for your enemies and you praying for the people that persecute you is a mustard seed of the kingdom of God that God will grow. And over time, I absolutely believe that that will have an impact in a global way as God's kingdom continues to come as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, friends, would you just pray with me before we head into our time of worship? God, we thank you so much 
for your grace and your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your indiscriminate love for us, God. The way that you are so generous. And we ask, God, that you would help us get in touch with that generosity. Lord, and each time we see the greed and the lust and the the lust for power that is within our own hearts, God, that we would know that you have extended your grace far above anything that we could possibly imagine. God, give us the strength and the courage to pray for those who are persecuting us. And we ask, God, that through that, you would make us like you. In Christ's name, amen.